and we're live. Hello, I'm Rachel Barenbaum. Welcome to Debut Spotlight. I'm the author of the brand new novel, Atomic Anna, and I cannot tell you how excited I am about our guest today, Boris Dreluk. I have been a fan of his for years, years, since his book 1917 came out, and I stalked him on the campus at Dartmouth to hear him lecture and get his signature in my copy. I absolutely love his work, his brilliant translations, and today we're here to celebrate his debut poetry collection. Here it is in all of its glory, my Hollywood. Boris, welcome to the show. Thank you, Rachel. I'm as much a fan of yours as you're a fan of mine. Oh, I love it. All right. So for those of you listening, I'm going to read his biography briefly so you get a chance to understand how amazing Boris is. And then we'll jump right into some questions. So Boris is the editor in chief of the Los Angeles Review of Books, my absolute favorite publication, by the way. He's co-editor of the Penguin Book of Russian Poetry, editor of 1917, Stories and Poems from the Russian Revolution. I highly recommend that book if you don't have a copy now. And 10 Poems from Russia, and translator of Isaac Babel, Mikhail Zachenko, I probably butchered that, and other authors. My Hollywood is his debut poetry collection from Paul Dry Books, which is a publication, an imprinted editor that I absolutely adore, a publishing house out of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, my hometown. So, yeah. Boris, thank you so much. Can you tell me what is this collection about? What unifies it? Well, yes. Uh, um, I, I think the collection is largely about the experience of um, emigres writ large, but especially emigres to Los Angeles, and Los Angeles being a kind of transient city uh, through which so many populations have passed, um, in which so many populations have attempted to set down roots, um, is a, a perfect venue uh, for the exploration of emigration and, and exile. Um, I myself am, am an emigrate to Los Angeles, and uh, some of the poems are personal, some are historically rooted. Um, all of them take, in one way or another, uh, the theme of alienation and emigration uh, as their subject. And my Hollywood? Why the Hollywood highlight? Well, because Hollywood is the part of Los Angeles that I know best. It's, it's where I grew up. Um, uh, technically West Hollywood, um, but I spent plenty of time in East Hollywood and Central Hollywood. Um, it's not such a big place, Hollywood, um, uh, but of course it looms large in the imagination. But the Hollywood that I wanted to show readers is is the the, the real um, nitty gritty of life in Hollywood itself, uh, the streets of Hollywood, not the glitz and glamour. Yeah, I love it. So um, one of the reasons that I'm such a fan of your work is your um, control and understanding of language is really unparalleled. And you, of course, are known for your translations. So can I, I'd just love to introduce my um, listeners today to this idea of you as the translator. Can you talk about what kind of translating work you do and what languages you work in? Sure. I, I work largely uh, with Russian. Um, uh, I uh, tend to work with uh, authors of the early 20th century. I'm really drawn to, to that period. Um, it's the language I, I feel I know best, although I grew up uh, in a Russian-speaking family in Ukraine um, in the 1980s, and uh, we emigrated in the 1990s. Um, I feel that the, the language that was spoken in my household somehow had more, more uh, in common with the language of the 1920s, with the work of Isaac Babel, the work of Mikhail Zoshinka, whom you, uh, whose name you, you got um, pretty, pretty damn right. Um, and uh, other authors um, that are very near and dear to me. So um, uh, that's the, the Russian language tradition with which I work. Uh, and I translate it into some version of 
the language of the 1920s um, uh, or 30s or, or 40s uh, that was spoken here in the United States uh, um, and uh, that I also love. Uh, I love through the work of Ring Lardner. I love it through the work of uh, Damien Runyon and various other authors that uh, caught my attention uh, uh, when I was uh, at a tender, impressionable age. So when you sit down to translate, I've been dying to ask you this for a long time, how do you sort of get into the zone? Do you do anything or just sit down? Well, yeah, I, I think that uh, there's there's no better way to start than to sit down and do it, of course. But um, uh, breaking the ice is hard. Uh, so um, I think it takes me um, a few pages into a text before I really you know, strike on some detail that gives me um, a perfect sense that I that I found the vehicle for for what I've seen in, in in the Russian text or what I've seen in the original text, and so once once that clicks, once I find the right word, the right phrasing, the right order of words for a particularly juicy line, a, a, a line that's rich in in uh, not just in content but in uh, uh, in flavor, uh, then I know that I'm I'm doing it right. And once that clicks. Uh, I begin to build in my head the, you know, the speaker of the voice that I need for this translation. I, I like a method actor, become the the person who would write such a thing in English and uh, uh, go on from there. Even the way you described that, the words you chose for that, they were just beautiful. Um, <laughs> and, and is poetry the same way? Do you think it takes you a while to get into a poem? How do you do you approach it in a different way? That's a very good question. So I, I do. I mean, it, it, given. Uh, my druthers, I would uh, um, de definitely translate poetry um, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. It's it's uh, it's what draws me most. Um, I do love prose, but the kinds of the kinds of prose that I that I'm that I tend to be drawn to uh, is also very rich in voice, um, poetic, one might say. Um, with poems, I think of the total experience of the poem. You know, a poem is um, a, a, a bit of a three-dimensional object, it, it, although it sits flatly on the page. It doesn't work just left to right or right to left or vertically or horizontally. It works in all directions at once, um, ideally, especially a lyric poem, maybe not epic poetry, but lyric poetry does that. So when you enter into the space of a poem, you kind of have you have the whole experience at once. Uh, that differentiates it from prose. Um, prose is immersive. You immerse yourself and you kind of you go you can go in and out. Um, but it's it's a world that's sustained over time. With a poem, it's like a punch in the gut. It it you know it's just right there, all there, all at once, and um, that's what that's what I think appeals to me most about um, the the process of translating poetry is that not only am I getting punched, but I'm also punching back in a way. I'm creating but something that has that has real impact um, that's immediate and intense. Right. So you have, of course, translated poems in this beautiful collection, but also original poems. Right. Mm -hmm. And so is it do you um, I see that many of them are started with an epigram or a quote right from an, another author. Are these these people that you read before you sit down to write your poetry. How do you well, get into that headspace? That's great. Yeah, I, I, that's a great question. There are a lot of the poems do uh, carry these epigraphs that uh, are um, setters of the scene and in, in, in a way they, they serve as a as a lead in and and in a way they served that function for me as as the poet I uh, would encounter something in an old book uh, let's say uh, a novella by Horace McCoy or even an, an old uh, newspaper article and that would trigger memories emotional memories of of the places described and uh, that combination of uh, textual encounter uh, and uh, the recollection of of intense memory uh, that 
or intense experience, that uh, is what gave rise to the poem. So somewhere between the text and the lived life, um, basically where I live. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. I love that. And I feel so lucky that I have your attention here and I can ask you all these questions that I've been dying to ask you for a while. Um, so another one that I'm fascinated with when it comes to translation and when it comes to people who grow up with more than one language in their head is this um, trouble that we face sometimes when there's a word that doesn't quite translate, right? Uh -huh. um, the obvious is if you, I don't know if you know French, right? You could say the word chez in French, right? To English, right? There's no direct translation. There are tons of words, but that I was thinking is familiar. But then there are also words like uh, expressions like mazel tov, we might say in Hebrew, which has come to be very light, right? And people use it all the time here in English, in America, in English. But if you use it, you know, if you're Israeli, you're a Hebrew speaker, there's a weight to it that is mm -hmm. lost in the fact that it's now part of our pop culture, right? That's right. So, so how do you as a translator deal with these nuances when it's you know, it's not just the word for word. Yeah, well, it, it, uh, for me, it's never uh, the word for word. I, you know, it, it's never uh, um, an exchange of, of, of uh, mathematical uh, data. Sure. It, sure. For me, um, no word exists in isolation. All words exist in their context. So, uh, you know, what, what's important is not what Mazel Tov means in isolation. What's important is what it means in the mouth of the person saying it. Mm -hmm. And uh, so translating uh, that phrase or a phrase like that um, depends on my understanding. My translation will depend on my understanding of uh, how it came to be in this text, where it's coming from, what's the emotion behind it, what's the thought behind it, what isn't being said as much as what is being said, um, what is the character striving to say. You know, in Chekhov's plays, um, people say all kinds of nonsense that has nothing to do with what they actually mean, but somehow we see what they mean behind those words. It's magic. And in a way, all texts are like this. Chekhov is just putting it front and center. But really, all speech is uh, as much about what isn't said as it is about what is said. Uh, and uh, the translator's job, as is the job of any good reader or any good viewer of theater, is to deduce uh, the full range uh, of, of what stands behind uh, a small utterance. Yes, so beautifully said. It's what isn't said that is always sometimes most important. Um, okay, so let's dive into the text itself. Um, I wanted to ask you, so there are a couple of sections in here, right? You've, you've uh, separated it into my Hollywood, right? Absentee ballet, um, Russian Hollywood, your translations, and then late style. So can you talk about why those sections, how you divided it? Yeah, uh, well, I mean, I, I think that I wanted the book to uh, be, uh, well, I'll just say it, I wanted it to be entertaining. Uh, and um, in order I mean, it's for... appropriate, right? Yeah, exactly. Hollywood. Exactly. It's Hollywood after all. Um, there's no business like show business. And, and I wanted it to have a little bit of that um, quality. You know, uh, a good film is well paced. Uh, uh, there is slow cinema. Uh, there's European cinema. And then there's, you know, there's the Hollywood spectacle, which is always a certain number of minutes and something happens in the middle and something happens in the end. That's how it works. And I wanted to structure um, the book uh, not necessarily formulaically, but I wanted it to have that kind of rise and fall quality where just just when you get comfortable with a certain theme, uh, I wanted to switch it up, uh, switch up the approach, uh, give a little bit of variety uh, to the reading experience, and then bring you back to something um, uh, more uh, familiar that you encountered a while ago. So first my poems of Hollywood, then some more abstract poems uh, that have less to do with with uh, uh, the theme of the book, then back to these translations of someone else's Hollywood, the Hollywood of these Russian-speaking poets. 
who lived in Hollywood, who right? all who lived in Hollywood, the exactly. end of their days, right? In yeah, Hollywood. all of them, all of yeah. them, absolutely, yes. Yeah, so they are connected to the land. And then you finish with late style, and the thought there is that's the end of the book. You know, you're coming, you're yeah. coming to the, to closure, and uh, um, and it's a little bit, of course, ironic because it's a small book and it's the first book. So you know, uh, why be so so dour about it? Uh, but I, I I wanted to draw the curtains. Yeah, yeah, I love it. Well, I mean, it is so it, there are not as many pages as a big thick novel, right? But I mean, every word in poetry has a weight <laughs> that is much greater than that in fiction. Yeah, so, I think so. I, I hope so, yeah. at least. Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah. even if it were flimsy, I'd still be proud of it. I mean, this is not flimsy. So I warned Boris beforehand that I was going to ask him to read one of his poems from uh, to us. So would you mind? Would you? Do I, I, I wouldn't. Okay. I wouldn't mind at all. This is a. Uh, I'll read a poem um, about a uh, store that meant a lot to me as a young man when we first immigrated to Los Angeles in 1991. I was eight years old, and uh, well, to say that we didn't have much money would be an exaggeration. You know, we. Um, uh, were brought here by the Hebrew Immigrant Aid Society um, on, on a loan. And, uh, uh, you know, I, I still had a lot of fun uh, despite our lack of funds. Um, but that was largely due to the fact that in the United States, you can buy anything for pennies. At that time, you could buy anything for pennies. And the best place to do it was at this, uh, this shop called Bargain Circus. Which is, so this, is, this describes the shop. And I'll read the epigraph first, Bargain Circus. So it goes at Bargain Circus, perhaps LA's most whimsical discount store. The eclectic selection of goods and guilt-inducing low prices draw a melange of Orthodox Jews, Russians, Armenians, and West Side connoisseurs. Los Angeles Times, 1997. Clown prince of bargain shops, those penny Annie Xanadus that take up half a block was the La Brea Circus. Huge barn chalk full of overstock, a poor man's horn of plenty. Were we, though broke as sparrows, like canaries flitted about whistled with disbelief at deals, no steals that would abash a thief, big pens for nickels, dollar dictionaries. I wore my Webster's out, clumsily wooing the tongue in which I sing this dime store's praise. But there worn too, my memories of those days, like VHS tapes after years of viewing and spooling backwards to the sweetest spot. Oh yes, that was another thing we bought, a plastic sports car VHS rewinder, so obsolete, so perfectly designed for its vanished purpose, like a streamlined hearse, inexorably heading in reverse. Beautiful, just beautiful. Thank and you. the way the way it ties together, I really think poetry, these poems in particular, are meant to be read out loud, right? There's a I hope so. I, I, yeah, there's a rhythm and and um, and you know, I would even go so far as to say there's a meter. and uh, i'm I'm very um, I'm, I'm very fond of fixed forms because they allow me to, you know, say something twice. You're 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 not just uh, you're not just saying the prose message. You're you're also working against the resistance of the form and um, the rhyme words tell a story of their own. Um, so there are more possibilities for me, at least, um, in in um, in form. Yeah, and amazing too. I mean, you bring us right back to the moment with VHS tapes because yeah. many people can relate to that. Right? I hope so. I mean, someday they won't be. You know, you know, it, it's but uh, at least at least the people living today. Most of the people living today who are my age uh, or older uh, still remember VHS tape. And younger. And younger, sure, uh, sure. I'm not, I'm, you know, that's true. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it's just great. So um, as you're putting this collection together, are you reading them out loud to other people, to yourself? How, how were you thinking about it? 
Well, I do. I do read them. I mean, I, I hear them in my head certainly, and and I, I read them out out loud as I, as I work on them. I, I mm-hmm. practice lines. I, I don't have, um, you know, I, I I'm not the best reader of my own work or of anybody's work for that matter. But um, uh, I enjoy. You sounded the fact- pretty good. Oh, thank you. <laughs> I was fishing for that one. Uh, but I, I do. I do enjoy. Um, I do enjoy the fact that every time I read a poem uh, out loud, I discover uh, some new. Um, way of interpreting it you know a new a new uh, word on, onto which i could place emphasis and and change the meaning ever so slightly so um i do enjoy that um but of course i i also enjoy sitting at, at home quietly reading poems to myself without without making so much as a whisper right i mean i, I read all of my books to my dog He's oh that's great that's right? great all the bad drafts oh that's great <laughs> Yeah, why not? So um, publishing anything, of course, is very hard. But I will say that publishing poetry, I feel like, is a an uphill battle like no other. It is very yeah. hard. Um, and so many of these poems have been published in other places before they came together as a collection, right? Yes. So was that a um, is that sort of the strategy to putting the book and a collection together? Or do, do the individual poems come first and then you sort of pick and choose and put them into a collection? I think a little bit of both. Some of the poems, uh, some of the poems are very old, um, you know, uh, and, and when I originally composed them, I don't think I had any sense of what the collection would look like. But a number of the poems, especially in the first section, were written um, with a collection in mind, I, I really understood that I didn't know exactly what it would look like, but I understood I was working on something that was uh, larger than than a single poem that had shape to it uh, that I would discover as I as I worked. Um, and uh, uh, I, I'd say publishing them in individually was a kind of um, confirmation. You know, if, if if I got a good response from an editor that I, I admired, um, uh, then I knew that I was on the right track. Right. I bet. Okay, so um, I want to skip back um, to another, well, to another idea that we had touched on earlier, of course, the catch on translation, which is a poem Uh in your collection on page 41, for anyone who's listening and holding your book. (laughs) Um, It's a shorter one, but it's one that um, really caught me. I I told you that I would read it, but is there any chance you would read it for me? Gladly, gladly. Okay, great, because that would be much better. Oh, sure. (laughs) Thank you. Um, Yeah, the catch on translation. I draw you out, faint voice, from rippled pages, a famished angler reeling in a fish, the kind that in the folktale grants a wish, a golden thing imbued with living magic. Between us is the taut line of attention, imperiled by the current and the wind. Slowly but willfully, I reel you in. We hold each other for a moment in suspension. I just love this one so much. This idea, right, even when you finish, we hold each other for a moment in suspension, suspension of disbelief as we sit down and read poetry, as we read books, right, stories, all of it, but also in language, right? Yes, suspended between languages. And, uh, you know, uh, that's I think I think it was that that occurred to me uh, when when um, translating, if if, if something is going very, very right, you do feel that you speak the same language as the poet and it's neither. Russian nor English. Uh, it's it's a kind of interlanguage um, that is the language of this particular poem, and that's the, the that's a kind of suspension. Um, you're you're uh, for the for the moment of of um, translating uh, this this work, you're in between 
uh, with only one person, that poet with whom you're working. Yeah. Yeah, the space of the in-between, a very loaded right, yes. expression, but it applies to so many different things, to politics, yes. to philosophy, oh, and yeah. to language. Absolutely. And um, I just, you know, because I also think if you really are, if you are a successful writer or if you understand what people are saying, it, it melt, words melt away and you get straight to the meaning, to the idea in, in your head, right, this image. So I always joke when I'm learning, um, if I'm learning a new language, uh, you know, I'll say like, well, I don't always get the grammar right, but I get the idea. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> right? Absolutely. Because we're there. And I and, felt and, like and you... It's true. And it's not, it's not just, you know, it's not just an image necessarily. Um, I do believe that there are images at play. And it's important to, to be able to imagine uh, the thing that's being described when you're translating, to visually imagine it. It's, I think a lot of translations, um, a lot of translations work well uh, especially well when the translator has clearly taken the time to visualize uh, the subject of, of, of what they're what they're writing about, what they're translating. But it's not, you know, language isn't just uh, imagery. Um, I think that the the more complicated element is uh, this nuanced uh, emotional landscape uh, of a poem. That's um, where the magic happens. That's the in between. That's mm -hmm. that's what that's communicated through the words or is conjured by the words but is not fully explained by the words. Right, or a feeling. I mean, as we see very sad news coming out of Ukraine right now, right? You can, you might, may not understand all the words people are saying, but yeah. you see those images and you still understand what is happening. Absolutely, right? absolutely. And, and sometimes you read words that don't necessarily um, communicate clearly to you, but you, you feel what's behind them. You, you feel what they're bringing up, they're, they're conjuring. Yeah. Um, okay, the time is just flying. I have like a thousand <laughs> more questions for you. But, but I wanted to go to, um, there's one other poem in here in specific that I wanted to ask you about. It's on page 47. And it is one of your translations. Mm -hmm. um, so it is by um, Vladimir Korvin Piotrovsky. Mm -hmm. um, it's called Exile's Return. And yeah. um, there's, it, it starts, um, uh, would you mind reading? <laughs> I really don't want to just from to perform to um, flags at half mast on the stern. Yes, I, I don't mind that at all. Sure, uh, exiles you. return. This is such a treat for me. <laughs> Thank you so much. Don't don't get no. You're giving me a big head. Um, to perform a final honor, a sleek cruiser from Kronstadt sails into the silent harbor slowly, like a juggernaut, ready for its distant journey taking leave of foreign lands, comes a lightweight coffin swaying through a sea of lowered heads. Were we right or wrong, no matter, flags at half-mast on the stern. I just, this just stopped me. And I read this, I ran around my house reading this to everyone who was here that day. <laughs> my kids, their friends, the dog. my husband, the dog, of course the dog. Yeah. Um, just this question, right? So you see the sleek cruiser from Kronstadt coming yeah. in. Were we right or wrong? No yeah. matter. At the end of the day, they're all dead. They're all dead. Exactly. I, this is a, a you know a poem by a man who had fought against um, the Bolsheviks and was taken prisoner and uh, nearly executed, um, escaped execution by this mm -hmm. you know his, uh, skin of his teeth. And and uh, um, late in life, he dreams um, the impossible dream, which is returning home. Uh, it, it would have been uh, un uh, impossible for him to do that. But he imagines himself being picked up by a Soviet cruiser and being uh, taken taken home to be buried as, perhaps as a hero, 
um, uh, unrealistic, but um, the best you could hope for. Yeah. But this question to you of is there, can there be right without wrong? And then is there a right or wrong? Does it even matter at the end yeah. of the day? Yeah. It's, it, it's all, it, it all is washed away by that final journey. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so when people are reading your collection, what do you want them to be thinking? Oh gosh, I don't, that's a really, that's a very interesting question. I, I, um, I feel, or maybe when I, they're done, if that yeah, makes it yeah. easier, right? No, they put it down. It, oh, it's. I really don't. I mean, I. I didn't. I didn't plan that far. I didn't plan people actually reading this thing. Uh, but of I course, think, we read it. Well, <laughs> I think um, what I would like for them to 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 do is to um, feel um, some degree of kinship and sympathy for um, uh, those who. Um, have tried uh, to make a home elsewhere and to find in their own experience uh, something that that makes that kinship possible because I think we've all uh, gone through this in, in one way or another. Um, it's, it's, I don't think it's a lacrimose book, but I don't think uh, uh, it's, it's uh, in the end a very sad one. But we all make big journeys uh, in, in our lives even if we never leave home. And um, the past leaves us behind. Uh, if, even if we don't leave it behind. And uh, I, I hope that we can all sympathize with uh, the loss that we all <laughs> incur as we live. Um, uh, yeah. Yeah. So has there been a reaction that surprised you? Are there people who are reading it differently from that? Uh, no, I don't think so. I think I, I really like the fact that people find it funny. Uh, some some critics have, have noted that, you know, there are a lot of decent jokes in there, uh, funny puns and, and, and stuff. And I, I like that because I, I, I think of myself as a hilarious person and, and I'd, like, I'd like people to confirm that. Wow, that's funny because I mean, there are funny moments, but I, yeah. I really was thinking more of that. I took it as a heavier collection. It's a heavy, it's a heavy, you know, right? No, you're right, Rachel, you're not wrong. I'm just saying that I, I do like the fact that uh, that has been leavened somewhat. Uh, for for a number of people by the the funny puns, yeah, yeah. I love that. Um, so I also wanted to ask you. Okay, so I'm, one more poem because we just have we don't have too much time. But I feel like if I get off of here and I haven't asked you this, I'm going to feel mad. Okay, so on page 29 we have Babel at the kibbutz. Babel. Yes. I don't know. I might have said it. Babel. Wrong. Just say Babel. Babel. Okay. Yeah, um, and I wanted to ask you about this poem and quickly for the listeners, the reason why I wanted to ask you about it is because there are so many languages in here. Right? Oh, yeah. We have, yeah. I mean, I'm counting, right? At least I'm seeing in English and then I see some Yiddish and then we see some names of places, you know, in their Spanish. languages, yeah. It, yeah. right? Spanish. I'm trying to think as I'm looking quickly, I'm seeing many languages in here. Yeah, so, there are a few. As the Tower of Babel would, right? As we, yeah, right? very much as so. We sort of go to that. Um, so I just wanted to ask how you thought about this and all those languages in that poem. Well, um, I always think of, of Babel, uh, whom, uh, of course, I love and I, I feel a great affinity for because we're both Odessans and, and that yes. means a lot. And um, I always I always think of him as a. As, um, we're talking person. about Isaac Babel. Isaac Babel, yes, exactly. Just to be clear. Yes, Isaac Babel. Not Babel, the Tower of yeah. Babel, which yeah, exactly. I also. Author of Red Cavalry and Odessa Stories. I, yes. I, uh, I find him to be a person who lived between languages. He was fluent in a number of languages and he relished um, the, the um, texture of, of language. He really loved uh, the double the entendre. Ex exactly. And just, just the, the, the feeling of it in your mouth, all of these things. 
And so I, this was this being an homage to to Babel. I wanted to work that in. And in one of his stories, he uh, uh, he has his, his protagonist, who's very much like him, perhaps him, uh, talk about an a, an uncle who ran away from Odessa, ran from Kiev too, and ended up in the United States and eventually died in, in Los Angeles. And the family receives a trunk of his possessions. And so I imagined being a, an Angelino, a very proud Angelino, I imagined the life of this uncle and uh, imagine that it's not very, you know, not very different from my own life um, as a kind of uh, uh, damaged emigre um, going from bar to bar and uh, bonded with this fictional uncle and uh, uh, reunited him with his with his uh, nephew. I uh, love it. Yeah, yeah. And his shady side too, right? The, yeah, he's very shady. Very shady. Yeah. Man. yeah, yeah. Um, and just the very last line of this sort of summed it up so well, right? The LA skies a quinceanera by Chagall. Schmales like us, we never quit the pale. Yeah. Yeah. Just... You, 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 how, however far you go, you're always in Odessa. Right. And all those languages in there. Just amazing. Yeah. So, yeah. Boris, we don't have that much time left. So in one minute, <laughs> oh, gosh. I know no pressure here or anything. Yeah. But um, do you have any advice for new poets out there who are looking to get started or looking to get published? Oh, looking to get well. Uh, for, Either way, for poets, yeah. For poets looking to get started, of course, I'll give the advice that everyone gives, which is read a lot of poems and don't be afraid to. I, I maybe this is you know, uh, actually, this is the opposite of the advice that most people give. I say find something you like and read more of thing, more more things like it. Uh, at least when you're starting out, uh, don't necessarily you know. Of course, you have to read broadly, but if you find something that you really love that really speaks to you, perhaps even something that you want to imitate. Um, do do your best because whatever happens uh, eventually you're going to come out with your own voice it's going to be a vo you know the reason that you like something is because it it has a voice that is a voice that you want to have that that maybe is somewhere inside you and you haven't gotten it out yet maybe you haven't even aged into it yet so keep reading it keep even trying to imitate it as embarrassing as the process is and out of that exercise will come out something that is very much your own I love uh, that advice. Yeah, I think that's I think that's accurate, but don't don't hold me to it. <laughs> Boris J. Luke, thank you so much. For those of you who haven't already read My Hollywood, here it is. The beauty of this cover and this collection. <laughs> Go out and buy a copy. Boris, thank you so much for oh. joining me. May you sell many, many copies. Oh, that was wonderful. Thank you very much, Rachel. All right.